Well, a few months ago, I was in France and uh, I was praying with my mother. My mother is a widow. You know, my father died in uh, 72 and uh, she was praying out loud. And she was mentioning to God about uh, her loneliness. She was mentioning my father. She was speaking about their love for one another. And she was placing all this in, into the Lord's hands. And uh, I, already, I already knew this prayer. But yet, at that moment, three words pierced my heart deeply. When she mentioned the ever-present pain of separation. I, I just can't forget those three words. And I'm sure that if my mother had thought that the, this earth would be the end of the line, you know, the, the final destination, let's say so, she would have never survived to my father's accident. My father died in a car accident because the shock would have killed her. Not killed her physically, perhaps, but it would have definitely killed her inside, you know. And I've seen many people who have lost a loved one, and especially when it happened in traumatic circumstances, who are like um, walking dead, you know, because something inside them is broken. So I ask God the question, Lord, why does death exist? Why do we all have to go through something so unbearable, so terrible? Why, Lord? Why so many tears, so much heartbreak? Why, Lord, so much distress? What kind of God are you? Lord, what kind of God are you to allow such pain? And I think of my friends, uh, Don and Monica, who have just lost their 13 years old son. He died um, of heart failure. And recently Don wrote to me, what happens when a father sees his son die? The whole world collapses, disintegrates. It's like an earthquake. There is nothing left but dust and ruins. All hope seems to have been destroyed. And believe me, this is a man with a strong faith. It's not an unbeliever. But this first reaction of his is very understandable. Now I also think of Bernadette, another friend. Her husband died of cancer. And she told me, I went to pieces as I was telling the children. My pain was even physical. A part of me had been cut off. Then I fell into the depth of despair. I felt I couldn't go on living. Everything seemed to be finished. I could see nothing but blackness in front of me. I had no more reason to live. I had built my whole life on him, and he was everything to me. I loved him so much. On a human level, there was nothing but emptiness and total collapse. And this woman, Bernadette, was a woman of faith, you know. Then I also think of my friend Christian. He was a very brilliant guy. He was extremely gracious and full of fun, actually. He gave joy to all he met. He loved his brother dearly, and they were very close. And then his brother killed himself. And it was a terrible shock for Christian. Such a deep shock that he became withdrawn, depressed, and he could no longer cope with his work, with his job. And now he's undergoing psychotherapy. And, uh, well, to tell you the truth, he's, he's not getting any better. Well, I will finish this litany with a testimony that struck me profoundly. It's a story of a great saint, St. Bernard, and one of the doctors of the church. St. Bernard was very attached to his brother, Gerald. One day, he was making a commentary on the Song of the Songs to his monks. And it was sublime, purely sublime, what he said. But halfway through his commentary, 
He was no longer able to contain himself and he let out a very heartbreaking cry of pain because his brother had just died. How can I go on hiding any longer that my poor heart is ravaged, my entrails are devoured by the fire that is concealed within me? It is as if my very heart had been torn out. I have been hiding my distress with tremendous self-control. I was afraid that sentiment would vanquish my faith. If only I could have died with him. Surviving him means nothing but pain and sorrow. Flow then, you tears. You've been waiting for so long for release. Let the tears pour out in floods. My soul was so close to his. They were one, not so much through the ties of blood, as by spiritual union. Because we were as one, the same sword cut off my life with his, taking one half to heaven and leaving the other on this earthly mire. I am the miserable half that is falling back into the mire, deprived of the best part of myself. My entrails have been torn out and I'm told he's not suffering. But I am suffering in spite of myself because I'm not hard as a rock or firm as metal. I can feel my pain and I cannot turn my thoughts away from it. I loathe death for my own sake and for those I love. The awful suffering of separation shows plainly what gift love brings when the other is present. Well, happily his brother Gerald had died like a saint, singing God's love. So St. Bernard concluded, Thus sang the one for whom we grieve, and I confess that it almost changes my sorrow into joy. Remembering his glory, I forget my own misery. How beautiful, isn't it? You know, when I think of the departure of someone we love and cherish, it reminds me of an earth mover. You know what is an earth mover? Like a bulldozer or an excavator. You know, those barbaric machines that move slowly but surely and they bite into the earth, taking a piece of it and putting it down again in another place. And when we lose somebody, that is what our poor battered hearts are like. We feel bereft, wounded in the core of our being. And sometimes we think that the earth mover will never stop, that it will take so much out of us that there will be nothing left. It is then that we must tell ourselves that these earth works are not for nothing. They are actually clearing a path, building something and making a beautiful landscape with water feature, etc., you know. But at the time, all we can feel is the awful pain. So let's go back to the question. Lord, what is your answer? What is this for? And this is a question that can seem double-edged. Now listen, I'm not saying, Lord, you are the creator. Why did you create death? Why are you hurting us so much? No, that would be blaming God, you know. God is not the author of death. My question is a genuine why. Why, Lord? Why death? And do you know how God answers me? He sends me back to my why. Yes, might seem absurd, but it is to me, poor little soul, poor mortal, that God asked, why death? You know, I found that in the very first book of the Bible, the Genesis, when death occurred for the first time and when death burst in on the world. Let me tell you a story. It was in the time of Adam and Eve. They had just come forth from God's hands, brand new, pure as a driven snow, and very happy in the Garden of Eden. They could converse freely with God. 
and everything smiled on them, nature, the sky, the earth, the animals, all of creation. It was a true paradise. Man was God's creature, not God himself, but a creature truly in his image, resembling him. The most pure light that dwelt in man's heart came to him from the source, which was God. He was dependent upon God for that, but it was a loving dependence, like that of a child towards a wonderful father. And man was free. Yes, he was free to be either at one with God or not at one with him. It would be a strange kind of love if the other were not free to love or not to love. Now, this is where God took an enormous risk, the risk of leaving man free. Seeing that his creature did not know all the mysteries, that he was still quite fragile, God decided to warn him of the danger that he might encounter along the way so that man would not get hurt. Actually, there was only one danger, just one. And this is the old story of the tree of knowledge. Let's read part of the text so that you can see for yourself. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man he had made. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A few verses later it's written, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Well, let's point out that in Hebrew, the word death appears twice in that phrase, when God said, you will surely die. As if God wanted to reemphasize the dangers that man would face if he ate this fruit. In Hebrew, it's written tamut, which could be translated as, you will die a death. As you might say in English, to love with great love or to desire with great desire. You know, you repeat twice the same word to, to, to stress on, on that. Because God was infinitely attached to his intimate love affair with man. He had created man to be immortal. And it's very important to see that in the beginning, man was not meant to die. He was not meant to die. Have you noticed that there is never any mention of death in the whole story of the creation? But the serpent was there. The serpent who was the enemy of God and by association the enemy of man, of whom he was jealous, and he was a liar. It was he who led Eve and then Adam to fall into the trap. First, he led them to doubt God's word, which is the word of life. They doubted, they ate the fruit, and immediately they lost the light. They were disconnected, they had become independent. They found themselves naked and they had to hide because they were afraid. And for the first time, fear entered the world. Can we imagine what happened in God's heart when he found his children hiding from him after knowing such an intimacy of love together? How it pierced God's heart. A few minutes previously, he was conversing delightfully with his darling children and it would always be so. But all of a sudden, he finds himself in the company of blind beings who are ashamed and terrified. He finds himself in the company of people destined to die. What a dreadful ordeal for God. One minute he was talking to living beings full of life and the next minute he finds himself face to face with people who are condemned to death.
Here I cannot help thinking about a mother whose tragic story moved me so deeply. Her son had tried to kill himself, but he had been caught in time. His life had been saved in hospital with a blood transfusion. But the blood used in the transfusion contained the AIDS virus. And this was the news his mother had to tell him the following day. So I believe that God's heart must have been like the heart of that woman. You will die a death. You know, no one of us will ever sound the depth of God's pain in this precise moment when man committed the sin that would lead him to death. Who will ever, ever understand God's dark night when his love is rejected and trodden underfoot, when man runs away from his love? Then God cries out, Adam, where are you? Can you not hear this cry from God running through the history of mankind? This cry, my child, where are you? As the mother faced with her dead child, as the widow faced with her dead husband, the same cry, the same distress, where are you? I want you, I want you, I cannot live without you. I'm dying because you have been taken away. You know, always the same reaction, the same questions. That's why I told you earlier that, that it is God himself who is asking us this question. And he tells us, I had warned you tenderly and clearly where the danger lay. And you made straight for it. Why, why? If only Israel would listen to me, says the Lord. If only my people would listen. You know, personally, I confess that I cannot read this passage of the Bible without weeping. Because it is obvious that in this whole thing, in the whole history of humanity, God was the first one to suffer the death of a loved one. He was the first and the most deeply hurt. He was so hurt that he simply couldn't bear it. It was impossible for him to come to terms with man's demise. Man who was the brightest jewel in the whole of his creation, made in his image. We all know that God is eternal in essence and immortal, that his life, life itself. Well, perhaps I'm going to say something completely strange, but I truly believe that God couldn't live without man because he loved him so much. Anyway, you well know the rest of the story. Being God, he knew everything and he had already prepared the cure even before the onset of the illness. And so we see in Eden, before the fall, there was a tree planted at his heart. It was the tree of life. And this tree represents the cross, the cross of Jesus, with streams of life flowing from it, through which the serpent is vanquished. Death will be vanquished. You know, an interesting thing is, the Jews often say that three things existed before the world was created. The Shabbat, the Torah, and the Messiah. Well, I don't know if this is the right order. Then, the Messiah was already there when this drama was unfolding in Eden. And the Messiah said to his father, Here I am, send me to save them. Then God decided that he would rescue Adam from the other side of death by creating the resurrection from the dead through his son Jesus. And in order to beat death on its own territory, Jesus, the son, the Messiah, had to be condemned to death himself and death on the cross. This same cross that is now our true tree of life and our boast. This cross from which life truly flows, where we come to slake 
our thirst. This cross that conquered death, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that those who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Well, do you think that I'm painting a rosy picture of what happened and that it's too good to be true? Well, then I'll quote to you a very serious text from the Second Vatican Council. Here is the quote. It is through a just inspiration of his heart that man rejects and refuses this total ruination and this definitive disintegration of his person. The seed of eternity that he carries inside him that is beyond matter revolts against death. The church, taught by divine revelation, affirms that God created man in view of a blessed end beyond the miseries of the present time. Christian faith teaches us that this bodily death will one day be vanquished, when the salvation that was lost through the fault of man will be restored to him by his all-powerful and merciful Savior. For God has called and is calling man to adhere to him with all his being in the eternal communion of an inalterable life. This victory was won by Christ when he rose from the dead, freeing man through his own death. Therefore, the faith may answer the anxious questions about his own future. It gives us at the same time the possibility of communion in Christ with our beloved brothers who are already dead, giving us the hope of the true life that they have found with God. What I'm now asking you earnestly is not to accuse God of inventing death. It's clear in the Book of Wisdom, God did not create death. It's written that. We can revolt against death, but let us not accuse God. The wages of sin is death, St. Paul tells us. As for God, He only created life and life for the sake of love. God is not the author of evil. And what is absolute evil? Sin is. It is a refusal of love. Perhaps this is a lesser evil. It's the only way out for Adam. After his fall, Adam, who had become filled with darkness and quick to fall, could no longer be in perfect and sublime communion with the divine glory. So, passing through death allowed Adam to leave sin behind with the life of the world and once more to reach perfect communion with his Creator. In Eden, it was impossible for sin to live side by side with glory and light. In this way, we can say that death is no longer a defeat, but a passage thanks to Jesus, a Passover leading into a life that is free from any stain, any suffering, or any imperfection. In other words, death has rescued love and its true original splendor. Well, before we get to the promises that Jesus has given us and that he carries out every day, I would like to, to say something that is very important for today's world. You know, I lived for a long time in my life in the East, and it felt like living on a different planet. Here in the West, we have lost of the basic intuition that have been planted deep within man, in the intimate depth of his heart. And why is this? Because of the constant noise and clamor of the materialistic mindset of our societies. You can go and say to any man in the street, listen, I have a magic wand and I can give you whatever you want most in the world. What are you going to ask for? And I can assure you that everybody, every single body, 
when they have looked sincerely into their heart, everybody without exception would reply, happiness, I want happiness. All right, you'd say, but what does happiness mean to you? And they would say, love, love without end, and life, life without end, and joy. And why will they say that? Because everyone, every single person on earth carries within them an inherited memory of Eden from the time when man was in the light. You know what strikes us when we visit secondary schools and colleges? It's the question that the young people ask. And those questions always gravitate around the same themes and the same subjects, like, why does love not last? Why can't we be happy? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why are we not told the truth? We are brainwashed with so many things that lead nowhere. Why does hatred exist? Actually, you never get used to it. We cannot get used to it because we are not meant to. So, you know, I believe it's right to listen to our deepest intuitions, and especially concerning love and life. When you think about it, someone who is experiencing true love, profound and pure, that person is convinced that he's experiencing something sacred and that this love cannot be reduced to nothing. He knows that love exists, so eternity exists. Otherwise, it's not really love. Love is a part of God that captivates us. And we all sense that true love, by its very essence, is made to last. And the proof of this is that when it is cut short, it is an outrage that we cannot endure. And you know, our awareness of the fact that love is made to last is anchored within us more profoundly even than our tendency to sin. And this is why deceit and broken marriages, infidelity, indifference, all the deficiencies of love, all those things hurt us terribly and can even lead us to death. So, in order to try and make up for this suffering, man invented cheap love. But that is not at all the answer, not at all. Another memory of Eden that we carry as a profound intuition is that of life, life without end. You know, God created us immortal. And we can see that after thousands of years, we are still scandalized by the existence of death. And this is only natural. Let us not be afraid to proclaim that we are immortal, because it is true. Anyone who loves life cannot accept that one day there will be nothingness, as if it had never existed. It's impossible. Human life is much too precious to be obliterated, wiped out one day suddenly like the life of an insect or an animal. Think, for example, of uh, someone looking at a child. Instinctively, he's led to believe that this life is too beautiful to be the result of chance and uh, well, a future corpse, and that's it. I remember a little boy called Mark. He was about six years old. And he was always pestering his mother with questions. And one day he asked her, Mommy, where was I before I was born? She replied, in my tummy, darling. Yes, I know, but where was I before I was in your tummy? And his mother is silent. Mommy, tell me where I was. Well, you were in God's mind. 
and you should have seen the little boy's eyes that lit up completely at this reply. He started jumping about, then he went off to play again. He was ecstatic. He had found his roots. You know, parents who have the responsibility of forming their children's hearts, even when they are non-believers, they know intuitively how to give them what is good for them. Which one of us would even dare to say to a child of six or seven who has lost his mother, there you are, your mother is dead, she's nowhere, she doesn't exist anymore, she will never be able to love you anymore, you will never see her again. And if we did say that to a child, what would happen? We would kill something inside that child and he would be traumatized for life. We know very well that this is unbearable and unacceptable. The prophets of nihilism were prophets mostly in their books. Take, for example, Jean-Paul Sartre. He never had any child. And perhaps I like to think that if he had had a child whom he had loved with all his heart, he would never have been able to indoctrinate him with what he wrote in his books. And perhaps atheistic existentialism and its poisons could have been overcome, stopped dead, crushed by a little fellow of five or six, full of life and full of the joy of living. But to tell the truth, there are questions coming from children that you just cannot get around. Speaking of this fundamental intuition about everlasting life, something happened that I shall never forget. One of our friends, John, had cancer. Another friend, Anne-Marie, was very close to him. Anne-Marie was totally atheist, while John was a Christian, a believer. Of course, she had been very upset to see him deteriorate. She had known him full of life, with a wonderful sense of humor, witty, intelligent, warm, and so on. Then came the day of his death. And that evening, she came to see me overwhelmed. And she told me, you know, when I saw him go, I told myself that it was not possible for a spirit like his to be extinguished, to disappear into nothing. And I believe John is alive. I know he is. I'm sure of it. So it seemed a crazy thing to say, but now I believe in God. Yes, I believe. I can't say anything less. And Anne-Marie truly began believing from that moment, I can tell. And for years she has been now devouring the word of God from cover to cover. She has been drinking at that source that she had in fact been thirsting for for a long time. And this shows that we are right in these profound intuitions that sometimes overpower us, revealing our deepest aspiration. Actually, it's only for the last century or so that doubts as to the existence of life after death has become commonplace. Before that, all peoples in all times believed that man lived on. But in our time, we really need a healing of our minds because they have soaked up all the atheist doctrines in all their forms. Well, I think of the teenagers and young people who have an absolute need to find a meaning to their lives and they are finding themselves flirting more and more with suicide and other forms of self-destruction. Why? Because they are not shown anything that is worthwhile. And I'm really asking them to shout to adults, we are sick of your planet Earth's final destination stuff. We are sick of your narrow viewpoints that are like the Great Wall of China or the Berlin Wall. Is there yes or no anything after death? Because if there is something else, 
and you haven't been telling us. That's really pathetic. Well, here, you know, we should use our common sense. We recognize a tree by its fruit. While we are dealing with death, perhaps you are expecting me to give you the key of how not to suffer or to suffer less. The only key I have is that of Jesus. All other keys would not work. They would be like paper mache. Jesus himself is asking us to totally abandon the spirit of the world so that we can experience the death of our loved one in a radically different way from that of the world. I knew a mother of six, Christiane. She loved her husband and her children. And then our dear Christiane discovered that she had cancer with only a few months to live. And because she had a deep Christian faith, she prepared for her departure in peace. And she talked to everyone about domestic concern, material question, and also spiritual ones. She prayed a lot and she offered up her suffering to the Lord. And then one day, her children were called urgently to her bedside. It's the end. Come quickly. Christiane was already entering into death and everyone started praying around her bed. There were many people present because she was very much loved. And then, against all expectations, she came slowly to herself, her mind cleared and some color came back to her cheeks and she started telling them simply what had just happened to her. And she said, it was as if I were at the gates of heaven and a joyful celebration was waiting for me there. Everyone was clapping, lifting their hands and inviting me in. There was a whole community of many very happy people there and I recognized many faces. They were awaiting a birth. And I could also hear you. You were the community below, but I thought your prayers were rather sad. You know, actually she had tasted something of heaven, but her hour had not yet come to enter heaven. And after this, she was so united with God, so radiant, that the nursing staff were asking her, Christian, aren't you anxious? But the fact is that her illness, lung cancer, causes great feeling of anxiety because of the gradual suffocation. And she would reply, no, why? But you should be feeling anxious with what you've got. Why should I be anxious, she said, when I know where I am going. And she was a, quite a character. And then she always refused to take sedatives. She insisted that she wanted to remain lucid so she could pray and offer her suffering to the Lord. And the doctors couldn't get over her courage. Now and again, she would say, I know that when I die, it will be a celebration. And for my funeral, I want the resurrection mass and nothing else. And it would be good if you were to celebrate too. And that's what happened, actually. You should have seen her funeral it was a wonderful celebration. Flowers were everywhere. There was singing, dancing, there was music. Now, there happened to be some guy passing by who didn't know anything of what was going on there. He went to have a look, thinking there must be a wedding going on. So he was looking for the bride. But when he realized what was happening, he was absolutely astounded. Afterwards, he was speaking to one of the family members and he said, My life changed that day. We live for the earth, but you, you live for heaven. You're already living in heaven now. On the other hand, the world likes to mask death and to hide it as much as possible. For example, 
The guidelines for glassy magazines are never to mention the word death. But as a result, when death does come, it's a shock. People are not in the least prepared for it. The Christian attitude is to live now in order to keep on living hereafter. And the resurrection that Jesus is offering us is not some kind of survival as it is in many other belief systems. It is, in the own words of St. Paul, a new creation and of the whole person, body and soul. Our life is hidden in God with Christ, St. Paul. We are one with him, he who is the risen one. That's what is so beautiful, you know. And here again, our profound intuitions are confirmed and enlightened by Judeo-Christian teaching. You see this need that we have to be one thing together, not to be alone, not to be singled out, this need to be one in love. You are the body of Christ, you are his members. It's what the Bible tells us. You know, Jesus himself knows very well what it is to lose a dear one. In the gospel, we see that Lazarus was his friend and he died. And then Jesus gave us an extraordinary teaching about life and resurrection. Jesus learned that his friend Lazarus is very ill. And instead of rushing off to heal him, he waits. He doesn't hurry. And when he does get there, it's too late. Lazarus had been dead for four days already. Let's read a part of the text. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And later in the gospel, Martha tells Mary, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you led him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And a little further on, we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, crying out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man comes out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, his face covered with a shroud. And Jesus said to them, Untie him and let him go. It's obvious that Jesus was deliberately late. He's got it all worked out. For 33 years, since he has been on earth, sent by his father, he had been burning with a desire to fulfill his own Passover, his death and resurrection, in order to save the world from eternal death and lead us into life. And through Lazarus, his very dear friend, Jesus wanted to give a sign of the power of life that was in him. And he did it in front of the Jews who were there. We are overwhelmed to see Jesus weeping. But why on earth is he weeping? Why? Surely not because of Lazarus' death. He already knows that he will have risen again in a few minutes' time. So why is Jesus weeping? It's written, When he saw Mary sobbing and the Jews were with her, Jesus trembled inside. What is happening to him here? Doesn't this remind you of something? Yes, the Garden of Eden. Jesus, 
who dwelt in the Father's bosom from the beginning, lives in the Father, and the Father lives in him. So when he trembled inside, it is the Father, the love of the Father that trembles within him. Jesus remembers the sobbing of the Father when Adam sinned and encountered separation and death. These are the same tears that have remained in the heart of the Father since the fall. The same tears that Jesus feels in the depth of his heart at that moment. And he's overwhelmed by it. And incredibly, he says of Lazarus, the same thing his father asked of Adam. Where is he? Where have you put him? It is the same cry of God, searching for man who is condemned to die. God who wants to find his beloved at all costs, to take him in his arms and cover him with kisses. And Jesus remembers the tears of his father in Eden. And it's also because he sees Mary of Bethany, like him, just like him, broken and in tears. And at that very moment, Mary reminds him of the great distress of his father in Eden. And that is exactly how he sees each one of us today when we are in grief, in the distress of separation, in the suffering of brokenness. That is how he sees us today. So when he raises Lazarus, we can see the breath of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life within Jesus and who breaks forth. In a loud cry, Jesus calls Lazarus, come out, and that's it. He has won, death is conquered. So there the sign is given. But this sign is only the prefiguration of his own resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus who will rise from the grave by himself, never to die again. And it is beautiful to see that this is the last time Jesus cries out when he commands Lazarus to rise from the dead, before he cries out for the last time from the cross. So you see, there is the cry that gives life and the cry that marks death. This is what giving one's life is. Jesus truly gave his life to Lazarus in advance, so to say. And moreover, thanks to Mary of Bethany, Jesus lets us in on a wonderful secret about himself that he had not told anyone before. He tells her, I am the resurrection, the resurrection in his essence. Whoever believes in me will live and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, let me tell you here that we notice that Jesus likes to give away his secrets to women. Just, just notice that, okay? You know, women are often the keepers of God's greatest secrets. And it is their role to pass them on from generation to generation in the intimacy of family life. Don't miss that, okay? Well, I'm thinking also of Anne, a mother who had lost two children. That's big for a mother to bear. However, thanks to the Lord, she has overcome the ordeal. But there was one question that haunted me, and I had to ask her, what would you say to a mother who does not believe and who loses a child? And Anne answered me with a disarming simplicity. She said, well, I would say to her, believe. It was so clear. That was it. What would you say to a mother who does not believe and who loses a child? And Anne answered me with a disarming simplicity. She said, well, I would say to her, believe. It was so clear. That was it. I was looking for kind of sophisticated answer, but Anne already had the answer. Because this is exactly what Jesus said and nothing more. Believe and you'll be saved. 
Believe and you will live. If you believe, you will see God's glory. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he shall live. Well, but you may say now, how are we to believe? What do we have to do in order to believe? Listen, I had a Jewish friend. He did not practice his religion. And one day he asked me, well, you know, I suffer from terrible anxiety. He had a girlfriend who had just converted and she was a Catholic. And uh, it happened that Jesus had healed her from her own anxiety. So my Jewish friend said to me, I suffer from anxiety too, and I would like to be healed of it, but I don't believe in Jesus, so I can't ask him to heal me. So what can I do to be healed all the same? I replied, well, simply say to Jesus, if you exist, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. And that's what my friend did. He prayed that prayer with the humility of the child and a very sincere heart. And then several weeks later, I received a letter. And it was incredible. I thought I was reading St. Paul himself. My Jewish friend had been overwhelmed by the tangible presence of Jesus, whom he had truly met. And to make a long story short, he's now a priest. And you know, whenever I see him at the altar, I always remember his helpless expression a few years earlier when he was saying to me, but I don't believe, what shall I do? Well, I have to be direct. When Jesus has given us promises, he has given us an inheritance. And these are not empty promises. And in this area, we've got to be very possessive. Yes, possessive and even jealous of the promises God has given us because they are our real treasures. The world, on the other hand, is always offering us all kinds of insurances. For instance, you have life insurance, <laughs> but we only get it when we die. Health insurances, but we only get it when we, when we are sick. And if you read the small print, you will never find a pledge that you won't feel sick. Now Jesus does give us this pledge. He promises us not only eternal life with him after we die, but he also promises that we can be happy with him here on earth now, happy because of him and filled with his love. So let's not be stupid. Let's take the best part he offers us to be truly alive. Well, you may say that some people die a good death, as we say, you know, sustained by the sacrament of the church and others die like pagans. So what happens to them? I had the great favor to meet Mart Robin, that famous French mystic when she was alive. She and Father Finnett taught us about this. Mart says that first we have that we call the apparent death. This apparent death is the, actually the clinical death. Then there is a real death when the soul enters into eternity. And there is a time lapse that's important. There is a time lapse between these deaths, these two deaths, that is longer or shorter according to whether the death was sudden, violent, uh, in an accident, for example, or drawn out. And a lot happens during this time lapse. And we know that in that time, the Lord offers his love and mercy to each person. This is when he comes to beg each soul to enter into the glory that he has prepared for her since the beginning, passing through his mercy. And this ultimate dialogue between the soul and his God 
remain, of course, the king's secret. But for sure, you know, God appears to the soul in all his splendor and the beauty of his tenderness. I remember here an incredible passage in Sister Faustina's diary, number 1698, about that time when the Lord comes and picks up the soul. Listen. I often attend upon the dying and through entreaties obtain for them trust in God's mercy and I implore God for an abundance of divine grace which is always victorious. God's mercy sometimes touches the sinner at the last moment in a wondrous and mysterious way. Outwardly it seems as if everything were lost but it is not so. The soul illuminated by a ray of God's powerful final grace, turns to God in the last moment with such a power of love that in an instant it receives from God forgiveness of sin and punishment, while outwardly it shows no sign either of repentance or of contrition, because souls at that stage no longer react to external things. Oh, how beyond comprehension is God's mercy! But horror! There are also souls who voluntarily and consciously reject and scorn this grace. Although a person is at the point of death, the merciful God gives the soul that interior vivid moment so that if the soul is willing, it has the possibility of returning to God. But sometimes the obduracy in soul is so great that consciously they choose hell. Then we can say that, that's me speaking again, you know, <laughs> we can say that God visits every person at least once in their lifetime. And it's often at the ultimate moment that they will choose between love and non-love during this apparent death. And we can do a lot for those who leave us. Through prayer, we can obtain the grace for everyone at that moment to throw themselves into God's wide-open arms. And guess what? This prayer can even be made retrospectively, after the funerals, or even many years later, because God sees our prayers in eternity. He's not stuck with limitations of time, you know? And sometimes He answers them even before they are prayed in time. And that can be a great consolation to people who have lost a dear one and who are not able to be there when they died. They were not able to pray at the deathbed. But it's never too late to pray, you know. It's good to have Masses celebrated for the dead, and even better, of course, to be present. Holy Mass is actually the whole Church united with Christ, who is thrusting the soul into the arms of the Father. And this is great. Now let's be specific. I believe that there are three types of death particularly painful for those who remain behind. And uh, I'm going to stick with these three because we have to make a choice. And it happens that Our Lady herself had to go through all three forms of mourning. First, let's take the grief of parents who have lost a child. And you know, this must be one of the most incomprehensible and intolerable for our sensibilities. Now I'm going to read a very beautiful text to you about this, but <laughs> I won't tell you who the author is. And it's about the Blessed Mother and uh, her son Jesus. Listen. She knows instinctively that Christ is both her son, her very own little one, and that he's God. 
she gazes at him and thinks, this God is my child. This divine flesh is my flesh. He comes from me. He has my eyes. And the shape of his mouth is the shape of mine. He looks like me. He's God and he looks like me. No other woman has ever had her God for herself alone like this. A tiny little God to hold in her arms and cover with kisses. A little warm God who smiles and breathes. A God we can touch and who laughs. And uh, later in the text, but no child has been more cruelly and more hastily torn from his mother because he's God and reaches far beyond what she can imagine. You know, I wanted to read this text to you because it's so beautiful and we would easily ascribe it to St. Bernard or St. Ephraim of Syria. But no, not at all. Maybe you won't believe me, but this text was written by Jean-Paul Sartre in 1940, at the time of his captivity in Germany. And he was sharing a cell with several priests. For those who might not know, Jean-Paul Sartre is a philosopher, a writer, who was kind of the leader of atheist existentialism. And he, he harmed many people through his books and pushed many people to suicide. So being in captivity, he had struck up a great friendship with his priest and he would spend hours and hours talking with them. And as Christmas was getting close, this priest asked him to help lead the vigil of Christmas. And Jean-Paul Sartre willingly became involved with it. He had been immersed in Christian culture but never embraced its faith. And this text seems to me like the story of a man who might have said to himself, if only it were true, wouldn't it be wonderful? So now let's imagine Jean-Paul Sartre in his final hour, discovering that this beauty aspired for is even more wonderful than in his story. Yes, a tiny little God to hold in your arms and cover with kisses. A little warm God who smiles and breathes. A God you can touch and who laughs. And what tenderness from a man who, on the other hand, finds that life is a nausea. And from this, how can we imagine a fraction of Mary's suffering when she sees her son dying on the cross? So I would like to say to all the mothers and fathers who have lost a child, throw yourselves into Mary's arms. She, the mother of God, is the one who is holding your little one in her arms now. And it is into her heart, which is more immense than the universe, that you may allow your tears to flow. She will bathe you in her gentleness, and she knows better than anyone what the death of a son is like. And she offers you the balm of her tenderness. I can promise you that on her behalf. You know, with Mary, our suffering is snatched up and it doesn't destroy us. You know, I have recently had another confirmation of this through a young Catholic woman who lost her child in a very tragic circumstances. This is what she wrote to me. I couldn't go to Mass anymore. I couldn't bear to hear about sacrifice. The blood of the Lamb, the host, all that made me feel sick. The only thing that could have helped me had become intolerable for me. I associated it all 
with my own child bathed in his own blood. I couldn't bear to think of Jesus on the cross. I am incensed with God, especially God the Father. He was the one I held responsible. Why did he allow that to happen? I was distraught. God seemed cruel to me. I cried out to him, but nothing. Not one single consolation did I receive. I wanted to scream, to kill myself, to be with my child, the flesh of my flesh. Then I took God aside. It can't be true, Lord. You are not a torturer. Come and prove your love to me. Otherwise, I won't be able to carry on living. And the following day, they were showing the movie, you know, um, Jesus of Nazareth from Zeffirelli. And I stayed till the end. And at the moment when Mary, all dressed in black, received the lifeless and bloody body of her son into her arms, and she started screaming, her face was bathed in tears, and by the thrashing rain of the storm that had just broken out on Golgotha, everything was dark with a striking beauty. And I recognized myself in Mary's cry. I started to cry for her, for myself, for my child who had died. I cried like I'd never cried before. And then all the fury left me, as if melted away, washed away by the flood of tears. And since then, I'm inhabited by peace and indescribable joy. I know that my child is in glory. It is a certainty of faith, of course, but it is so strong that I find myself even unable to regret what happened. My husband and I soon had another child who will obviously never replace the first one. But now we have two children, one in heaven and the other on earth. God has not taken anything from us. He has given us more. Isn't it amazing to be able to say such a thing? Now, the second terrible sorrow we may have is when the person you love, your husband or wife, for example, dies, or any love. And Mary has gone before us there, too. Well, I, I have to point out that the love between Mary and Joseph was exemplary. One couldn't find on earth a love more tender than theirs. Of course, Joseph was not that old man, half bald, as, uh, <laughs> as we see in some pictures. He was a young Jew, strong as a carpenter and a pious Jew, what we'd call in Hebrew a tzaddik, uh, like he's described in the scriptures, a just man, a righteous man, who loved the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. And uh, as the head of the family, Joseph must have left a gaping hole behind him when he died. Well, we are not told anything in the gospel, but we can imagine the Blessed Mother as a widow, so ardently in love with her Joseph. And the grief she felt at his absence was acute. But what was her consolation there? Again, that the hand of God had acted and acted for the good. What an education this heart had to go through, cold as it was to contain not only its creator, but also the wall of humanity. And you see Mary's great secret in her pain, within her pain, was to love God above all else. I remember the testimony of a young couple where the wife had just returned to the Lord. And before she died, she and her husband were telling me very simply what they were going through. 
And together we had some very intense conversation. And as she had already reached terminal cancer, her husband told me, you see, when we first met, Patricia and myself had nothing in common. There was no mutual attraction between us or any desire to be together. For example, I loved traveling and she didn't. I like brunettes and she was blonde. <laughs> and it was the same for her in relation to me. And yet we loved each other. It was stronger than both of us. And we didn't really understand why. For years we remained together like this. And then one day, since we were both looking for a spiritual meaning to our lives, we decided to spend some time in a monastery. And that is where we both truly met God. Then we started to pray together spontaneously. And our eyes were opened. We finally understood why we loved each other so much. Through prayer, each one of us discovered the soul of the other one. And we realized that it was each of our souls who loved the other. How fantastic! We were overcome by this discovery and it changed our life completely. The more we prayed together, the more we loved each other. And the Lord worked wonders in our hearts. And when Patricia fell ill, we lived through this illness with the Lord. And it is incredible how uplifted we felt. Now that Patricia is with the Lord, abandoned as she was in Him, in her suffering and her illness, it was such a powerful experience, I felt like I was in a dream. On a human level, it was impossible, but God did it all for us. It may seem strange, but I feel an incredible peace and even joy within me. And you know what happened? That's me speaking again. <laughs> you know, when you look at this man and his marriage, what happened is they went from being two to being three. That's the key. They welcome in their midst the source of their love, as Mary and Joseph did. And then what was supposed to be unbearable, intolerable, became light for them. Yes, light, light and joy and transfiguration. And that is typical of the Lord. We can easily recognize him there. Now, the last kind of separation I want to talk about, and perhaps the most tragic one and the most cruel one, is when a loved one, a young person, for example, commits suicide. Well, I'm aware that I'm touching here a very deep wound in our society. So I'm going to let you listen to the words of a young girl, a normal young girl of our time, who had a very powerful experience with the Lord and who, unfortunately, through a succession of tragic circumstances, felt driven to suicide. What happened was that she was raped and after that she fell in love with a young man who did not love her. And she had been subject to some very cruel and violent psychological and emotional traumas. And the poor girl had to be admitted to hospital, suffering from depression, and she had had several breakdowns. Well, in short, she was getting nowhere, and she was obsessed with the thought that suicide was the only way out for her misery. You know, at the same time, she loved her family, and it broke her heart to hurt them by killing herself. So since she loved the Lord, and she was sure that He would take her to Himself, she made up this little parable for her family in order to console them from her departure. That's what she wrote. A father had seven children, and he said to each of them, 
here we all love each other. We share together, we can see each other, touch each other, and it's wonderful. But for some reasons that I cannot explain, I'm going to send you all into exile for a time that I will decide myself. And I'm warning you, it will be hard. There will be trials, and especially, you will not have the joyful vision of one another that we are enjoying now. You will miss that, but I will give you my strength, even when you can't see me anymore. So, my children, I count on you. I will come back and pick you up at the hour which I will have chosen myself and which will be the best one. So be patient. Afterwards, we will be together forever, okay? Now off you go. And each of the children came down to earth. I was one of those children. But after a time of happiness and many blessings, I was crushed by tribulations. I was afraid, but more than that, I was heartbroken. I cracked up completely. I had breakdown after breakdown. I went from psychiatrist hospital to psychiatrist hospital. And nobody could give me back my joy of living. Each minute was like an hour of agony. Then I remembered my father in heaven and I said, Oh, well, I'm not waiting for him any longer. I'm not able to. I'm going back now. Enough is enough. And that's what I did. And dear parents, that's what I did. I just went back to him. And what will this father do when he sees his child coming back, covered in wounds, with her heart just one big bloody mass of pain? Well, I'll tell you what he'll say. He'll say, Oh, my child, you're here already? Couldn't you have waited for me? Oh, I see, I understand. Well, I'm glad you're here. It so happens that I was not doing anything right now. I must have been waiting for you. Come, my child, I will mend your heart. And believe me, this father filled with love will embrace her long and hard. He will do everything to show her that he was waiting just for her, that he had nothing else to do but to love her. They will spend long moments in each other's arms. And the fact that the appointment was premature will be forgotten. Only love will exist there. So, dear dad, dear mom, do not feel bad about it. For you too, love is all you want. Now I'm sure I'm with God because He's love. I embrace you. So that was the letter, that was the parable. Gee, sister, that's a beautiful parable. But you don't want to give the impression suicide is ever okay. I remember how you insisted in another tape how people who've made that mistake badly regret to have shortened their life when they see God after death. For one thing, they see how much good God had intended to do through the rest of their life. They truly regret having left this world beforehand. I'm sure they'd never advise anyone to follow their example. But I must use the whole story because there is more. This young girl had in fact managed to get hold of fatal doses of medication. And while she was working out her plan to avoid being discovered before she died, and being taken to hospital for resuscitation, she actually felt a presence stirring in her heart. A kind of joy came over her. It was the Lord visiting her. She could really feel it. And the same day she gave up the idea of killing herself. 
and it was only a matter of days before she had planned to do it. Eventually, instead of sending the note to her parents, she sent it to me when she heard that I was going to record a cassette about death. And she told me, perhaps this will help someone, families who have lost children to suicide, and maybe also for young people who are considering suicide, so that they might realize that God can restore taste for life. Now let's come back to the Blessed Mother, because she too experienced the suicide of someone close, with Judas. We never think of the torture Our Lady endured seeing Judas getting into bad ways. She had adopted each of the apostles as her own sons, and she could well see that Judas was stealing, that he was organizing his own little businesses on the side, that he was up to no good, and she must have been praying all the more for him. Now experience shows that the more we pray for someone, the more we grow to love him. And this is unavoidable. Our Lady experienced the tragedy of the suicide of Judas on the very same day that her own son died. Both, one after the other. And like many parents today, stricken by grief at the sight of their children having killed themselves, perhaps she was saying to herself, if only I had been there. If only I could have given him a word of comfort just a word, just one. And uh, if only this, if only that, he wouldn't be dead. And it's true Mary was not with Judas when the high priest sent him packing, him and his money. She wasn't there. She wasn't there when it occurred to him to hang himself. And yet, yes, her prayer and her companionship, mystical and invisible, so to speak, were there. I believe that Mary did not leave Judas for a moment in her heart. No, Jesus gave her as mother to all men. She was standing at the foot of the cross at that instant, beneath the source of living water that gushed forth from the heart of Jesus. And it is also from this open heart that she is still consoling now all those who are willing to give her their sufferings today, who are tempted to kill themselves. It is no accident that we invoke Mary as the gate of heaven, not only for those who leave us, but even more for those who remain and are tormented by tribulation. By entrusting themselves to her, countless people have rediscovered hope and the joy of living. And maybe you have noticed yourself, Mary likes to pay her little visits, to give her little signs. If you look carefully, you'll see them. More than ever today, we need to hold on to our apron stings, just like children. The world today is so badly stressed out with all kinds of death threats. Nuclear destruction, terrorism, cancer, AIDS, and that just for starters. And as a result, everyone on earth who loves somebody cannot help to fear that something will happen, might happen to their loved ones that they could be suddenly taken away from them. But see, this insecurity was constant throughout Mary's earthly life. Look carefully. From the time Jesus was born, he was in danger of death from Herod. Then the tragedy of the Holy Innocence. Then the stress of the flight to Egypt. With all the risks 
associated with traveling in those times. Then there were the three terrible days when Jesus was missing, when he stayed back in Jerusalem at the age of 12, Mary's anguish at having lost him. Then later, during the hidden life in Nazareth, it's obvious that Jesus' exceptional character must have grated on the inhabitants of Nazareth. So we can imagine the mother's sensitivity to each piece of sarcasm, the least persecution, the smallest act of unkindness. We see the example of this kind of spitefulness in the Gospels. Then, during Jesus' public life, Mary's stress at seeing her son often mocked, rejected, and threatened with death. Yes, the death threats. His head had a price on it, in a way. Day after day, all the risk he took by showing himself to the crowds beneath the curious and jealous eyes of some notable Jews. And then the awful hours of the Passion, when Mary was so close to her love and distraught, as she stayed by his side during the five long hours he was on the cross. And then, after the resurrection, it wasn't long before it started up again. Once again, there were death threats for the apostles. The apostles had become her only family, her dearly beloved sons. Then after, in the early church, the martyrdom of Stephen and James. Then her friend Lazarus, who was also threatened with death. We can say that all her life, Mary was immersed in the imminence of separation and painful death. And I'm saying this for all those who fear for the lives of their children and their friends, because we never see Mary lacking in courage or despairing. You know, the Blessed Mother traveled her admirable path with wonderful grace. And she's the one who can sustain us in our anxiety about death. She knows. She knows very well. We can tell her everything. She trusted in God so many times when it seemed that everything was lost. But she never rebelled or lost hope. You know, along with Jesus, she was preparing what the Jews call the world to come. And we Christians, we call it the kingdom of God. Mary's eyes were fastened on this kingdom that she could already see during her life in Jesus and in the early church. Now, I truly believe that what saves us through the cruel death of a loved one is entering in this same hope in the kingdom that Mary had. May I tell you another story? Nora, my friend, had what is commonly called a near-death experience. She was at death's door and had been pronounced clinically dead when she saw a great light. Now one day, a man lost his little 10-year-old son, who was his only child. Well, this man believed his son was definitely obliterated and reduced to nothing. And he was so full of despair that he considered killing himself too. He had no faith in God and nothing could console him. And he had terrible nightmares in imagination, he saw his son very unhappy, in some terrible place of suffering, goodness knows where, and all alone. So at the end, he started going to see mediums, fortune tellers, and necromancers, and all that kind of stuff. 
Then someone he knew told him about Nora's experience and he decided to go and see her. And then they talked together for hours and hours. And a few days later, after having thought deeply about the whole thing, he called Nora and said, Thanks to you, I know now that my little boy is happy, that he is with God in the light. So I am in the light too. Even if I am suffering because of his death, I am happy for him. And this man, you know what, he gave up the idea of killing himself. Those are the tangible fruits of hope. And this is what touches people. Now, what about us? If one day we have to cry out our pain, let us cry it towards God. Let's not be afraid of offending Him by crying out our suffering to Him. You know, the Bible is full with the cries of the prophets and the cries of the saints or others who sometimes have said to God, that's it, I've had enough. And that is the language of today, a curse on the day I was born. You can find these passages for yourselves. And God has always listened and consoled. When the distress becomes truly too much to bear, never cry out into the abyss, into empty space. This would destroy us, it could kill us. No, cry out your distress towards God. Call Him. Well, to conclude, in tribute to all those who have gone before us into the world to come, I'd like to read a fantastic text about the death of Moses taken from Devarim Rabbah. And you know how the Jewish commentators have a very special way of describing the familiarity between God and his creatures. When the time came for Moses to leave this world, God said to him, Come, your time has arrived. And Moses replied to the everlasting God, King of the world, after all I've been through, you are telling me your time has come? No, I don't want to die. I want to live and recount your deeds. You can't, said the everlasting God, for death is the fate of all mortals. I have decided that you will not cross over the Jordan. So Moses imposed a fast, drew a small circle and said, I will not leave this place. Let this decree be brought to me. And he put on a sackcloth, covered himself with ashes, and stood before God with supplications and prayers. And his supplication and prayers made the heavens and earth tremble with all the orders of creation. What did God do? He cried out to each tribunal at each gate of heaven, Do not accept Moses' prayer. Do not allow it to rise before me, because his judgment has been sealed. And he told his serving angels, Go down, close all the gates of the heavens, because the voice of a prayer is echoing powerfully in the heavens. They tried to close the heavens, but they could not because of the voice of Moses' prayer, for that prayer was like a sword that cuts and tears, and nothing could stop it. And Moses said before God, King of the world, you well know all the labor the children of Israel has cost me. If you do not let me enter the land of Israel, at least let me stay in this world so that I may live and not die. If I don't let you die to this world, replied God, how will you live again in the other world? 
Melech Haolam, king of the world, continued Moses, if you will not allow me to enter the land of Israel, let me be like a beast of the fields, eating grass and drinking water, living and enjoying this world. God replied, that's enough, say no more. Then God said to Gabriel, Gabriel, go fetch me the soul of Moses. Melech Haolam, king of the world, replied the angel, Moses is worth more than 60 myriads. How can I see him die? So God said to Michael, Go fetch me the soul of Moses. Melech Haolam, king of the world, replied the angel, I was his master and he was my disciple. How could I see him die? Then a bat call, which is a celestial voice, rang out and said, the end of your life has come, but do not fear, Moses. I will be with you myself, and I will celebrate your funeral. And Moses arose and sanctified himself like the seraphim, and the Holy Blessed One came down from the heights of heaven to receive the soul of Moses, and the three serving angels, Michael, Gabriel, and Sach Saugel, were with him, and the Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy Blessed One said, Close your eyes, place your hands on your chest and your feet on one another. Then he called the soul from the body and said, My daughter, I had given you 120 years to dwell in the body of Moses. Now come and don't delay. His end has come. Mele Haolam, king of the world, said the soul, I know that you are the God of all spirits and that the souls of all the living and all the dead are in your hands. You created me, you formed me and placed me for 120 years in the body of Moses. But is there a body more pure than his in the whole world? I do not want to come out. Come out, come out, said God, do not delay. I will take you to the highest heaven to dwell beneath the throne of my splendor among the cherubim, the seraphim, and all the celestial armies. Meler Haolam, king of the world, she replied, I beg you to leave me. Leave me in the body of Moses. Then God kissed the mouth of Moses, and in this kiss of his mouth, he took back his soul. Isn't this wonderful? Now I have a question. Will not God, who is madly in love with each one of our souls, however defiled and polluted it may be, will not this God come and fetch each one of our souls with a kiss of his mouth? Mm -hmm.